and welcome to another episode of ID Podcast. Joining me in the studio is Grinder. How are you doing, Grinder? Hey, Mike. Not too bad. Can't complain. You know, still at home during pandemic times, but things are starting to open up now. It is early July right now that we're recording the introduction, so it's been a while since the actual interview went down. But uh, yeah, the outlook on the world has changed quite a bit in that time. And I understand this is one of the first interviews you recorded virtually during a pandemic. How is that? Yes, yes, indeed it was. Uh, it was a bit of a challenge, honestly. Mostly our radio station interviews have been happening at the radio station, at CFMU at McMaster's campus. They have some amazing equipment, great place to record. It's awesome. Getting the guests in there is always a pleasure. But kind of working around our restrictions of the pandemic now, we've had to do it online. So it was a little bit of a tech problem to solve. So shout out to our editors and our production team for making sure that it went as smoothly as it did. We were fortunate enough to get Dr. Jose Pereira to agree to an online interview, and he was a great guest. He was awesome. We talked a little bit about microphones. I learned that he's also a bit of an audiophile, so that was, that was a great little conversation to start off our interview. In terms of the interview, I know it's about palliative care. Could you tell us a little bit more about what to expect? Absolutely. Yeah. So Dr. Jose Pereira, he's heavily involved in the Division of Palliative Care at McMaster within the Department of Family Medicine. And he's also one of the founders and scientific leads of Pallium Canada, whose goal it is to kind of increase the access to as well as the quality of palliative care and palliative care education in the undergrad medical world. So we were very, very lucky to have Dr. Jose on. And he also shared quite a bit about his personal experience as well. He has a very diverse background. He's been kind of taught in a variety of different systems, and he's also practiced medicine in a variety of different systems. So to get his international perspective was quite the treat. Some of the things that I really liked from the interview, and maybe you can listen out for, is how all physicians should be comfortable speaking about palliative care, some of the training opportunities available to medical students to do electives, and some courses with palliative care, how most patients with chronic diseases actually benefit from taking a palliative care approach that's also active, the role of palliative care, and the importance of discussing goals of care with all patients. Without further ado, let's hear from you and Lucy and Dr. Pereira. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the ID podcast. Today, we're incredibly grateful to have with us Dr. Jose Pereira. He's a palliative care doctor and a researcher at McMaster University, and he's also the co-founder and scientific officer of Pallium Canada, an organization that aims to improve the quality and accessibility of palliative care. Hi, Dr. Pereira. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. So can we just start off by having you introduce yourself, please? Sure. So um, I'm a palliative care physician, and, and I've been doing palliative care since uh, 1995 when I did my training in palliative care. Prior to that, I had quite a, I would say, an eclectic background in that I had uh, trained in South Africa and worked in different settings in South Africa, including some mission hospitals in rural parts of South Africa. I'd come to Canada in 1992 to do a locum, actually to work as a family physician in a small community in, um, in Manitoba, a small rural community. Absolutely loved it. And about three years into it, became interested in palliative care. And that's where I started my career. So, so over the years, I have been involved in many different uh, ways in palliative care, from working in palliative care units to setting up palliative care units and working in hospices and driving around communities, um, seeing patients in their homes, and all along maintained an academic position. And so I've worked my way up. And so now I'm Professor of Palliative Care at McMaster University in the Division of Palliative Care, which is a division within the Department of Family Medicine, which is where my roots actually are from. I did a residency previously in Edmonton in family medicine. And as you said, I've been working with Pallium Canada. I started it in 2000. So we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. Um, and I've worked with that organization, which is a nonprofit organization since then. Wow, that's incredible. Happy birthday to Pallium. <laughs> Thank you. I'll pass it on. <laughs> so clearly from what you've just told us, you've had a lot of really diverse experiences. So we thought it'd be cool to ask you three really quick rapid fire questions to get to know you a bit better. Sure. So what's your favorite place in the world? Very biased. It's an island in the Atlantic. It's about 300 kilometers west of Morocco and about an hour and a half flight southwest of Lisbon, and it's called Madeira. And I'm biased because that's where my family is from. So my mother and my father um, originated 
their families came from Madeira. It's a fantastic place to go to. I love it. Second would be Lisbon, uh, Portugal, and that's my my background. And third has to be South Africa, the Cape in South Africa. Wow, that's incredible. That's so diverse. I was born and raised in South Africa, hence the African connection. Ooh, and now you're in Canada and you've lived all over Canada as well. I have. I have worked in Manitoba, in uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, and now Hamilton. And in the meantime, I also had a sojourn in Switzerland where I worked for three years, and that was a fantastic experience. Wow, that's incredible. And what's one book that you think every medical student should read? There are two of them. Uh, one of them is Cutting for Stone by Virigesi. Um, amazing story of a physician um, in Ethiopia during very difficult times. But it, but it describes so beautifully the roots of medicine. So Cutting for Stone. And the other one is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I'll definitely make sure to add those to the reading list. I have nothing but time as of recent to get, to get through some <laughs> quality books. Thank you for those recommendations. Yeah, Man's Search for Meaning is this incredible book. So uh, Viktor Frankl um, was a psychologist who was also a survivor of the Holocaust. And after surviving the camp, all his family died in, in the Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, camp. He, he observed um, how come some people survived and others didn't and, and came up with what's called logotherapy or meaning-making therapy. But it's incredible insights. And it's not a, it's not a, a long book. It's actually a very short book, mm -hmm. but it's very powerful. Wow, that sounds, that sounds amazingly powerful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. And our last get to know you question, what does life look like outside of medicine for you? I'm embarrassed about that one because <laughs> I'm not very good at finding work-life balance. Over the years, I've gone in and out of different things. So my interests are, uh, I used to do a lot of, I used to play a lot of soccer, actually, um, football and squash. But then because of some injuries, um, no longer do that, obviously. Um, so I've got other interests like uh, walking. So I've walked, uh, for example, the Camino in Spain, which is an 800-kilometer pilgrimage. I've done that twice now. Wow. Um, and I enjoy reading. I enjoy uh, drawing. So I sketch and do some painting, particularly with charcoal and with pastels. Wow, that's incredible. I'd love to see some of your artwork sometime. Oh, I'm not so sure about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, now that we've got a chance to get to know you a little bit better, um, I think we'd love to get into talking a little bit more about palliative care. I know that a lot of the listeners right now may not have a sort of firm and full understanding of what palliative care entails. So I think a great place to start maybe is what is palliative care and, and what's the scope of the practice include? That's a fantastic question because there are many myths around palliative care. In fact, when I'm teaching, when I'm teaching students or residents or anyone else, I often start off by asking them, I'm going to mention two words, and I want you to, as soon as you hear it, what comes to your mind? So word association game. And then I mention palliative care. And invariably, the first things that come to people's mind is end of life, last days, last hours, suffering, pain. And that's one of the biggest myths. So palliative care begins much earlier in the illness trajectory. In fact, the World Health Organization defined palliative care in 2002 as being appropriate for basically anyone with a serious illness, a progressive life-limiting uh, serious illness. So if one waits to activate palliative care or palliative care approach only in the very last days or weeks of life, or unfortunately, as the COVID pandemic is beginning to convey that it's only in the last hours of life, then we're going to miss lots of opportunities to improve the quality of life of patients throughout their um, illness trajectories. So palliative care should start as soon as the disease is found to be serious, um, and especially if it's progressing. And treating the disease and controlling the disease and palliative care are not mutually exclusive. You'll often hear people say, do you want active care or do you want palliative care? Now, that's absolutely wrong. Palliative care is active care. And you can be, you can have cancer and being treated for with chemotherapy or radiotherapy to cure or control the disease. But most patients will be experiencing significant pain or symptoms. 
psychological distress, um, uh, spiritual needs, social needs. And that's where palliative care can come in to improve the quality of life, even in those patients who are receiving treatments to control the disease. So patients who've got very advanced heart disease or very advanced lung diseases or neurological diseases, while we're treating those diseases and trying to control them, we can also apply palliative care. Now, as time unfolds, unfortunately in some patients, the diseases recur and progress. And as they become more advanced, the palliative care approach becomes more predominant, um, especially when cure, when treatments to cure or control are no longer possible. So you can see it's this model of the two being together and palliative care beginning much earlier. And there's actually research to show that patients who receive palliative care alongside other treatments much earlier do much, much better, significantly better than those who receive a palliative care only at the very end of life. It's fascinating. There's one study, for example, that showed patients who received palliative care earlier lived longer, lived two to three months longer than those who received palliative care only at the very end, which, which sounds paradoxical, right? Because a lot of people say, but, you know, surely if you start palliative care earlier, are people going to lose hope? They're going to give up. You know, the medications are going to shorten life. Well, that's not true. In fact, they make better decisions. They live better in whatever time they have left. And then as the study shows, they can live longer because they're not subjected to treatments that are so aggressive that don't have any benefits, but actually shorten their lives. So sorry, that was a long response to your question, but it is such a good question. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot to unpack there. If I can just summarize really quickly, it sounds like palliative care is thought a lot of the time by patients and physicians alike to be something that's more end of the life uh, related. And I guess one of the misconceptions you'd, you'd like to fight, and it sounds like you've been fighting it throughout your career, is that palliative care doesn't only have a place at the end of the care, but it has a place early on uh, in care and helping manage patients' symptoms and making sure patients are comfortable, as well as actually helping them to fight and live longer. So it's not just something that uh, shortens someone's life. Correct. Beautifully, beautifully uh, worded. Exactly. Palliative care is also very holistic care. Because um, we usually look at it in terms of four domains. So the physical domains are things like pain, shortness of breath, um, nausea, uh, fatigue, loss of weight, loss of appetite. And then there's also the social domain. So I'm a young person and I'm seriously ill with an advanced disease, cancer or kidney disease. Who's going to look after my young family? Uh, who's going to pay for my, for my medications if I want to be at home, for example? Then there's the, the social domain, so fear, anxiety, distress about what's happening, sadness as well. Um, and then there is the spiritual or religious domain. Um, and so many patients experience needs across these, diff these four domains. So I've always thought of palliative care as one of those fields that is profoundly um, holistic in, in that you really do look at the whole person. It's very person-centered. Um, and what's also very exciting, I think, about palliative care is that it doesn't have to be practiced only by palliative care specialists. In fact, I would argue that every physician, especially any physician who's going to be caring for patients with serious illnesses, should have these very basic palliative care skill sets. So on that topic, like, what do you think healthcare practitioners should know about palliative care? Well, the first one is to debunk the myths, right? That it's only for the last days of, of, of life, the last days or weeks of life. The next one are other myths around medication. So, and, and for example, the myth around the opioid that, you know, opioids are dangerous and opioids shorten people's lives. I've always said that opioids are like driving a car. If you drive it safely, it's safe. If you drive it dangerously, it's dangerous. And unfortunately, you know, the, the tragic opioid crisis that we that just preceded this pandemic and, and is still ongoing, mm -hmm. painted opioids in a very bad light. But for, for, for many patients with palliative care needs, they can be very useful for managing pain and shortness of breath. The other thing about palliative care that I think people need to know is, um, as I said, it's the holistic care and that it's not provided only by palliative care specialist teams. So it's everyone's business. It's everyone's responsibility. Absolutely. And I think that uh, to speak a little bit to the misconceptions, I'm definitely guilty of having a poor understanding of what palliative care entailed before starting medical school. Um, and I, th I think I'm very happy to report that in the coverage that we've gotten so far of palliative care, it's been kind of stressing some of those misconceptions that you've mentioned. And we've had the chance to learn more about the other aspects that aren't mentioned as much. Um, so 
training all kinds of physicians, no matter where you're headed, is absolutely essential. Fantastic. I'm hoping that across the country, there's more, there are more hours put into medical school around pad of care, because there's quite a few medical schools where um, there are too few hours dedicated to pad of care. And, you know, the, the education should be both the, the theory piece, so the preclinical, and then also clinical. And very few uh, medical students actually undertake um, any form of clinical rotations in palliative care. You know, there are a few reasons for that. Often they are, they are optional, you know, electives or selectives. Um, and so people don't see its importance. Um, it's the, those people in practice and, out, and then experiencing this in their practices wish they had got some training before. But across the country, um, we still have a long way to go in terms of integrating more palliative care education into the curricula. So I, I say that one of the one of the challenges um, is the is the fact that they're only optional. The other one, though, is that there are not enough palliative care doctors and teachers across the country to to be able to do all the teaching. So we need to figure out how every single medical student can come out of medical school with those basic competencies. Absolutely. And I think it's learning opportunities like this that are kind of important first steps to be taking. Um, so thank you for your work. I know that you're working in a whole bunch of domains to make sure that information is readily accessible and available out there. Um, and, and one that we'd love to highlight really quickly, if you would like to talk a little bit about it, Dr. Pereira, is the website you've been working on. Sure. So um, in my work in Pallium Canada, so Pallium Canada, as I said earlier, is a nonprofit organization. Over the years, it's been funded primarily by Health Canada, but it's it's always been piecemeal. We've never been able to receive good, solid funding to really scale it up the way it needs to. But having said that, it has gone across the country. So last year alone, there were about 450 courses that were delivered across the country, mainly for healthcare professionals who are already in practice. And, and they're into professional courses. In the last few months, we've actually uh, been developing also online courses. In fact, we've been doing a lot of online teaching now through Pallium and in my other academic positions over the years. Um, I think I was telling you before we came on uh, online that um, I, I developed the very first pad of care online course back way back in 1998 and the first website in 1995, the pad of care website. But over the years, we've developed it further. So at the moment, what we've been focusing on, particularly with the COVID pandemic, is to make palliative care education available to students, residents, and healthcare professionals. So if you go to um, the pallium, P-A-L-L-I-U-M.ca website, you'll find free access to many modules. And I would really encourage all students to, to go through those modules. There are about, um, there are about eight of them. Uh, they range in about 10 to 20 minutes, 30 minutes. They're quick to do. You'll learn a lot about uh, pad of care. And in fact, there are two additional modules that we've been working on that address um, the palliative management of patients with uh, COVID-19 uh, virus uh, disease. The other website we've been working on is the McMaster Division website. So if you go to fhs.mcmaster.ca, um, I think slash palliative care, you'll come to our division website, which needs to be updated. So I apologize up front. Um, <laughs> but the priority at this point was to get the materials out there. Absolutely. So if you go to, there's a link there for resources. And there's some fantastic resource we've been working on, on how to manage breathlessness how to manage different symptoms, um, palliative sedation protocols. So there's, you know, I think a lot of information there for people interested in it. Yeah, I think that's excellent that you've shared that because right now um, a lot of people have time and it's a really great opportunity to learn about um, something so important to healthcare. And the fact yeah. that you bring up COVID, I think, is really great because as you sort of know, like COVID is really sort of challenging the way we think a lot about um, healthcare ethics and how we care for people. So can you sort of tell us a bit about what the role is of palliative care in the COVID pandemic, not just for palliative care doctors, but for all healthcare professionals? Yeah, fantastic question. So it's interesting because I think when the dust starts settling on this, I'm going to try and write a paper that's going to be written. The title will be Two Steps Forward and Three Steps Back. Apologies to, to Springsteen. <laughs> uh, to Bruce Springsteen. The reason why is because, so palliative care has got a very important role to play um, in the pandemic, but unfortunately in the media and the way people speak about it, 
they speak of it and they use a language that suggests or that indicates that it's only for the last hours of life. So all this work we've been doing to try and tell people, listen, palliative care begins much earlier in the illness trajectory. And no, we're not going to change the name to something else because people don't like what it sounds like. Um, because the issue is talking about serious illness and coming to terms with that. So we've spent now a few years trying to teach that palliative care begins much earlier. And then in the media, we're hearing about, well, you either get onto a ventilator, the um, innuendo there being that you will then survive, or you don't, and then you need palliative care and you get palliative care. So that dichotomy of ventilator survival versus pad of care dying is really, really damaging. It's not correct. Absolutely, pad of care is vitally important for those patients whose, um, unfortunately, their disease, the COVID disease is progressing rapidly. And, and we need to manage uh, severe symptoms like shortness of breath and agitation. And importantly, even before that, we need to have discussions with them about um, advanced care planning, what's important in their lives and goals of care discussions when we see this whole tragic uh, tragedy unfolding in long-term care homes and, and nursing homes. But we shouldn't forget that other patients, patients who will recover from the disease, can also benefit from a palliative care approach. There are many patients who are experiencing severe um, symptoms like severe shortness of breath, anxiety, uh, panic, and this, we use the same approaches to manage those patients. So while they're getting their treatments, you know, with oxygen, and in some cases, even with, uh, with ventilators, um, we can still manage their symptoms until they recover. So palliative care, the good, uh, you know, the, one of the positive outcomes of all this is that the, a lot of people are talking now about end of life care and having these important discussions and reflecting on what's important for them in their lives and what's important for them if they reach a situation where the disease is not, um, um, is not responding to treatments. A lot of people are thinking more about it, but don't forget that palliative care is also applicable to patients earlier in the disease and patients who will recover. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of values. So I think a lot of the time we like to think of the goal of healthcare is to bring someone back to 100% state of health. And that's kind of it, is just the biological aspect of it. Um, but it's very much important to highlight that every patient's needs and their goals in terms of what they want to get out of their treatment is very different. And what one patient holds to a much higher value might be very different from what another patient holds. And I just would love to kind of dive deeper into how do the goals of treatment for each patient, how are they shaped by the, the needs and wants of those patients when it comes to palliative care? Yeah, great question. So... So I think the first, the first thing to say is it's important that we all, no matter what age, no matter our health status. In fact, I've had these discussions with my family. I've got a 23-year-old, a a going on 24-year-old son. Um, I've got a 21-year-old daughter. I know what their uh, values and wishes are related to their end of life. They know mine. They know my wife's. So the important thing is to have these discussions. So, for example, the discussions can be something like, you know, if for whatever reason I get hit by a car and, and I'm unable to make decisions for myself, who would I like to have to make decisions on my behalf in terms of healthcare? And then also, okay, under what circumstance, what would it be important for me at the end of life? So if I were to develop a disease that is incurable and that's progressive, what would be important for me while I'm on that journey? Would it be lots of extra time or more time, but with good quality of life. Um, what happens if the disease is suddenly found to be very terminal? What would be important for me? So I think those discussions are important to, uh, to have. Then from what, um, so the advanced care planning is basically what I'm speaking about. And that is saying, okay, what is important for me in terms of uh, my life now? And in the future, should I be very seriously ill? And if I were to have a disease that's not curable, obviously, if, you know, if I get hit by a car tomorrow, I would want, you know, everything done to, to keep me alive. Um, but if I were to be diagnosed with a very, very serious cancer tomorrow and, and they tell me, well, we're going to try and try and cure it with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, I would want that as long as that there's a, you know, there's a good chance of that working and that my quality of life is, a pro is, is, is good or as best as possible. 
it's a different story if they say to me, you know what, unfortunately, your cancer is one that chemotherapy, radiotherapy is not going to control, or it's so advanced, it's not going to control. And yes, we can give you treatments. Here are the pros and the cons of each of the treatments, allowing me to make their decisions. So advanced, so let me just differentiate two very important concepts here. The first one is advanced care planning. And advanced care planning is about who will make decisions for me if I'm unable to make them, no matter what age I'm at, and what would be important for me at my end of life, whatever that may look like. Recognizing that about 80 to 90% of us, uh, we usually die following a, an illness. Um, you know, it can go for many weeks or even months or years. Only 10% of us will die very suddenly, you know, in a, an accident or a myocardial infarction. Then there's the other concept called goals of care. So goals of care are within that, at that moment, uh, given the context of what's happening to me. So things like the illness, the disease, the burden of the disease, um, the extent of the disease, treatments, the pros and cons of the treatments, what would I, what treatment would I want um, at that particular moment? So you can see it would align with your advanced care plans, but it shifts over time as well. Because today my cancer might be very well controlled. And I'm going to say, well, for me, the most important thing is to be comfortable um, and to get the treatments to extend my life because um, it's, it's working. But in a few years, maybe it's no longer working and things are progressing. Then I need to ask myself, what is important for me at this time? Is it quality or is it quantity? Right. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned it. A lot of these conversations are happening more and more. And I think one thing that we have all taken away from this outbreak is this idea of understanding that death is something that may or may not come when it does come. Everyone's going to eventually succumb to it. And it's not something that should be kind of discussed behind closed doors in hushed tones. I think it's something that is very human. It's uh, universal and it's something that we need to be discussing more openly. And uh, just getting behind the idea of talking to your family about advanced care planning. I know it's a very difficult conversation to, to open up. Uh, do you have any tips that you'd like to share with the listeners for someone who would like to open that conversation and is having trouble finding an, an avenue or a place to do it? Sure. So, you know, there's a fantastic resource. Um, it's a national resource, um, but uh, there are also provincial versions of it, and it's called Speak Up. So if you just search on the web, Speak Up campaign, uh, conversations, discussions, you'll find this fantastic um, resource. And in it are little one pages on how you can have this dis uh, the discussion. First of all, how you can have a reflections yourself, and then how you can have these discussions with family members. And then also tips on how you can open up these discussions with patients um, and their families as well. So I would um, suggest you, you look at that. Um, one of the online modules that Pallium Canada has put out there is also one on advanced care planning and goals of care discussions. So I would suggest you look at that as well. It's a, it's a, it's a short module. It's only about 15 minutes long. Uh, but in it are also some phrases that you can use um, with patients and families. So something that I really love to hear from you as well is, um, so right now we're sort of talking about what palliative care is like um, sort of like advanced care planning, considering goals of care. But what is the experience like as a patient? Like, I know it's hard to put yourself in someone's head, but can you talk us through what um, a patient actively receiving palliative care goes through? Sure. So maybe what I'll do is I'll share with you a story. And, and hopefully the story will illustrate what the absence of palliative care results in. This yeah, is a true story. So this happened not very long ago, not in this city, uh, but in a place I was working in. And it was, it was an, a June evening and I got asked to see a patient in a hospital to provide some advice. So the, the attending physician had asked me to do, do a consultation. So I arrived on the, on the unit and read through the patient chart. And the bottom line was this. So this is a patient who had had, had multiple myeloma for, for quite a few years and uh, unfortunately five months before that uh, while on chemotherapy treatment to control the disease had experienced some significant complications of the chemotherapy so he had developed septicemia actually so he was admitted to hospital for antibiotics and the management of the septicemia 
unfortunately, the one complication went on to the next, on to the next, but they continued giving chemotherapy treatments. Um, even though it was clear that the disease was progressing um, and was not responding to the chemotherapy treatments and that the chemotherapy treatments were actually causing more problems than, than benefits. So he, was, he wasn't able to return home by March. So about two and a half months into the hospitalization, um, he then developed kidney failure as a result of a combination of the disease, the multiple myeloma and some of the treatments. There were no discussions held with him, at least not recorded, or that he or the, or the family remembered um, about advanced care planning or symptom management. Throughout all of this, he's experiencing severe pain. He's experiencing severe nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath. So they started him on dialysis um, in, at the end of March. So he's on to dialysis, cannot go home. The dialysis three, four times a week develop some complications from the dialysis, but the dialysis continues. And in the meantime, the chemotherapy treatment continues. By, by May, so four and a half months into his hospital stay, he has not gone home yet. He's now lost a lot of weight. So he was dying from his disease. And he was telling his family, I want someone to tell me honestly what's happening. I, my wish is to go home. I know I'm dying. And the family was saying, no, you've got to fight this. And no one was having any discussions with him. And so at as the disease progressed, he then lost enormous amount of weight. So we call that cachexia. So the reason why he was losing weight is because when the disease becomes very advanced, it, it gives off uh, chemicals, so cytokines, so inflammatory cytokines. And these cytokines change one's metabolism and one goes into a catabolic state that ends up with protein breakdown and loss of proteolysis. And that's why people with very advanced disease lose a lot of weight. Um, it's not because they're not eating, it's these cytokines. And even if they were eating, in most cases, they would not improve their, their weight or their appetite. So without any discussions about what's happening with the disease, that this is progressing, et cetera, they decided to put in total parental nutrition, so TPN. Um, so he was started on total parental nutrition and knowing full well that, that wasn't going to work. Anyway, he ended up dying in June, having spent five months in hospital, so imagine, um, and suffering with the family. So when I went in to see him, he asked me, tell me honestly what's happening, and, and I can't live with this pain, I can't live with the shortness of breath, etc. So we started doing some treatments to alleviate the pain, to alleviate the shortness of breath, the nausea, and he responded very well to those uh, treatments. But obviously, his disease was very advanced. He asked me, how long do I have to live? And I remember the wife saying, looking at him and saying, no, we shouldn't be answering that. And, and he turned to and he said, no, I need to know because I, I know things are, are, are moving on. And I asked him, what do you think? And he said, well, I, I believe that only if a short time. And I said, look, I don't want to lie to you. I agree with you. I think that's the case. So he was very distressed. Uh, family were very distressed. Um, he died about a week later. So I'm telling you the story because imagine if things had been different. Imagine if if we go back a few months, even a year before that, imagine if when he was really experiencing symptoms from his disease while he was receiving chemotherapy when, at a time when it was effective, imagine if they'd been doing palliative care to, to manage his pain, manage his nausea and vomiting, manage his uh, shortness of breath. Imagine if when the chemotherapy was no longer effective, someone sat down and said, listen, I'm sorry, um, I wish I could be telling you that there is treatments to control your disease, but these treatments are no longer working and we don't have any other treatments. So let's talk about what's important for you in whatever time. And, and it sounds like you really want to go home. Let's just see how we can make that happen. And you're feeling pain. Um, let's see what we can do about that so we can give you a good quality of life. Imagine when he went into kidney failure, if someone had said, look, here's the pro, this is what's happening. Your disease is progressing. Here are the pros and cons. If we do dialysis, hemodialysis, you'll be hooked up onto a machine three or four times a week. The disease will continue progressing. Here are the pros and cons. He may have at the time decided to continue with it, but he may also have said, you know what, given all that, I'd rather spend whatever time I have left at home with my grandchildren, with my children. And then again, when the time came when he had lost so much weight and instead of sitting down and saying, look, giving you TPN is not going to make a difference. Imagine if the conversation had been like that. Imagine if they'd sat down and said, look, let's talk about what is happening to you. Let's treat your symptoms, your distress you're experiencing, the fear, the anxiety you're experiencing, 
the pain you're experiencing and also address your family's needs and for you because he also had some some very powerful spiritual needs let's address those absolutely so i shared the story to give you a sense of what could have been done and what could have helped he would probably not be in hospital for such long he wouldn't have been in hospitalized for such a long time and may have had a better quality of life in the months that he had left right yeah it sounds like a false dichotomy was presented to him where you know his choices were between aggressive treatment or stopping all treatment and allowing yourself to to kind of give in to the illness when there is a third option available and that is palliative care that can work in combination with active treatment you know it's it's almost sounds more paternalistic to be taking that approach and not giving all of the options available to the patient yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it. You know, I think we do need to prov uh, provide the options. Um, and I think we also need to be ready to say, this is what we think. This is our suggestion. It's very interesting, the whole dynamics about who makes decisions. So, you know, many years ago, but still in some cultures, and to a certain degree, my own Portuguese culture, uh, we unfortunately sometimes, and I've experienced that with my family back in Portugal, there is some paternalism that occurs and and that is that the doctor knows best and will decide and but i think if we go to the other extreme um it can also be this is what we think and it's up to you to make the decision right um, which can also put patients and families into a very difficult position um so you know research shows that it's a bell curve that most patients and families want information it will vary from person to person. So I always find in my practice, it's important to say, are you someone who wants a lot of information or wants only a little bit of information or don't want any information? But it's a bell curve because most patients want information. They want to be told what's happening and they want a joint decision-making. So in other words, okay, you've told me the pros and cons of the different treatments. Now together, you, the doc, uh, the nurse and I, let's sit down in my family. Let's see what's best for me. At the end of each of those of the curve of the bell are some patients, and it's a very small number, who will say, I don't want anything to do with these decisions. It's my partner, my spouse, who makes that decision on my behalf, my family member. And then at the other end of the bell curve, again, a very small proportion of patients who are going to say, you give me the information and I will make my decision for myself. So that, that whole thing, I think, is something that needs to be studied in medicine is the whole decision-making process. And what is our contribution to that decision-making process in ways that we can empower patients and families to be part of that decision-making process? That's really interesting um, that you mentioned that. What do you see your role as in these patients and their families' lives? Well, my role from a part of perspective, I think, is to get to know the person, uh, number one, and their context and their circumstances and their story. A narrative is a very powerful tool. And I would encourage you all as medical students and, and all of us and myself in practice to continue practicing the use of narrative. You know, tell me about your life. What are you most proud of? What's important for you? Because we get to know people. So I think the most important thing is get, getting to know the person. It, you know, it's interesting, way back in the 1960s, the modern pioneer, I say modern because the concept of palliative care has actually existed for, for millennia. And that is, you know, if you can't cure, you, you continue caring. But the modern movement of palliative care started about the 60s and 70s by Dame uh, Cicely Saunders in, in London, in the United Kingdom. And she got to know this one patient um, very well. In fact, he was a Polish man who had escaped from Poland during the war and was now living in, in the United Kingdom and had got um, advanced cancer. And one day she asked him, what is, it, what is it that I can do for you? And he said, I want what's in your mind and what's in your heart. So what does that mean? It means that we need to bring to bear our knowledge, our clinical knowledge, um, medical knowledge. Why is the person losing weight? What are the symptoms? What do I need to look for? Um, the, the examination, come up with a differential diagnosis. Uh, what investigations do I need to do? So that whole cognitive piece about knowing the field in, in order to better care for the patient. But when that patient many years ago said to Dame Sissy Saunders, I also want what's in your heart. I think what he was saying, and, and in fact, when she asked him what he meant by it, he said, I also want you to be with me as a human being, to get to know me as a person and my story. Wow. That's powerful. I think that's a piece that we lose often. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. I guess from now we've sort of heard a lot about what the needs are in palliative care and why patients um, need palliative care early on and for us to recognize these needs early on. Where do you see palliative care going in the future? Very good question. So I'm hoping, and I've been working with many colleagues across the country and across the world, uh, that palliative care truly becomes fully integrated in healthcare and also in social care. So what I mean by that, the healthcare system can, can provide healthcare, but we rely and need to rely a lot on families and the community to also support people. So there's a whole social aspect to it as well. But I do hope that palliative care is seen much broader than just the last days or weeks of life, that it is fully integrated. I look to a future where every healthcare professional will have these basic skill sets, which we call the palliative care approach or primary or generalist level palliative care. I look for a time when adequate specialist services are also in place. So for example, there are some hospitals in Canada where there is no palliative care team to provide consultation support or collaborative support to uh, healthcare professionals who are struggling managing a patient with palliative care needs. There are some places in the country where there's no palliative care unit. Um, there are many places where there are not enough hospices. There are some places where there are not enough palliative care teams in the community. So I do look for a time where we it's fully integrated and we think of it as a system uh, with all its different components, strong generalist level palliative care. In other words, all healthcare professionals have these basic skill sets and are able to identify patients early and activate palliative care early, but that there are also specialist levels um, teams. So teams in hospitals, team in the community, home care, teams in long-term care, hospices, palliative care units, where those patients with difficult problems can be either cared for or that the, their doctors, nurses can turn to a specialist team for advice and support. I've also looked to a future where people, when they think of the word palliative, stop thinking of it only in terms of death, negative, and last days of life, that it is something positive, it's quality of life. And I hope that the word palliative still exists because in some quarters they're saying we should change the word because it's got such negative connotations. Well, I would argue that if we change the word, whatever new word we're going to use, whatever it be, in 10 years' time, we're going to be back to square, to square one, saying, well, we're going to change that name. We'll only change that once we tackle it as a society where we're open to having these discussions about serious illness and what's important for us and also end of life. Right. It's more of a cultural issue that we need to tackle than it is a label. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for these insights. I mean, I think there's a lot that we... Me and Lucy will both take back and digest and chew on, I'm sure, for the next little bit after this interview. Um, but there's, you know, there's the palliative care is such a large topic and it's something that, you know, we could devote an entire series of podcasts to just because we've only really touched the surface, I think, today in this conversation. Um, but for all the people who are listening back home, would you just like to really quickly kind of mention those resources that you talked about throughout the interview that we can turn to if we would like to learn more? Sure. So I think on the on the short term go to www.pallium.ca and uh, look up um, free online modules. Go through them if you've got the time, and I think you do have the time, look through them. And while you're on the website, also look at, there's a fascinating thing called compassionate communities. I was talking earlier about it's not just healthcare professionals who care. It takes a whole, you know, there's a saying, it takes a whole village, where it takes a whole community to care for someone. So while you're there, you know, students are innovative. Students, uh, I, I firmly believe, are altruistic and want to improve the lives of others and want to improve the world we live in. So look at the compassionate communities uh, part of the website and ask yourself, is this something that you as medical students can also participate in, can help in to contribute to developing compassionate communities wherever you're from and wherever you're going to be going to? The other a resource I would ask you to look at is the Division of Palliative Care at McMaster University. So fhs.mcmaster.ca and then Palliative Care are some resources um, if you're interested in looking at um, tips on symptom management, particularly during the pandemic. This is a unique time we live in and to see what the similarities and the differences are of managing palliative care needs in a COVID uh, infection versus in non-pandemic situation. Awesome. So that sounds like there's a, a huge wealth of resources that we have to reach out to. 
I'm excited myself to take a deeper dive maybe later today, I know. And don't forget, speak up, right? Remember to look up, speak up. Absolutely, speak up. Speak up is another big one, for sure. For all the conversations that are be hopefully started from listening to this podcast, I think speak up would be a great resource to turn to. Excellent. Um, but thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Pereira. It's been uh, amazing to have you, and thank you so much for your insights. Hopefully we can do another podcast and we can learn more about how palliative care has changed after this pandemic, and we can meet in the studio and see each other face-to-face -face <laughs> rather than digitally. Fantastic. Well, Gurinder, Lucy, thank you so much for this fantastic opportunity and uh, this amazing service that you guys uh, provide to, to, to your peers, to colleagues. Yeah, thank you so much for educating us on palliative care. You're incredibly insightful. It's been a pleasure. And, and reach out to us. We've got a division. We'd love to have more learners with us. Everyone who comes through and learns about palliative care, love it. It's something that makes us all, I think, better physicians, no matter what specialty you're going to go into. So please do reach out to us. We would be more than happy to, to help you guys. Oh, yeah, we definitely will. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, this is Lucien Grinder signing off with Dr. Perrin in the studio. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was a really informative and exciting interview with Dr. Jose Pereira, I have to say. I really appreciated him sitting down with us, I guess, virtually and sharing all of his expertise as well as his life experiences. So I definitely took a lot away from it. But Mike, what, what would you say are some highlights of the interview that you really learned from? I really enjoyed the interview too. I think one of the biggest highlights was just kind of understanding the realm of what is considered palliative care and what is not really considered palliative care. I liked how he highlighted the different domains of physical, social, psychological, and spiritual domains of palliative care. I think in particular, focusing on common complaints that patients might have of shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, just to kind of make sure the patient feels as comfortable as they can, and the importance of taking an approach earlier as opposed to later. So it's not necessarily end-of-life care, as is commonly thought, but it's something that really should be integrated into the practice of all different physicians and much earlier on for many patients. Yeah, absolutely. And he also shared a very powerful story, in my opinion, about a patient who maybe could have used some palliative care earlier along in their treatment and maybe some errors in the way that the medical team approached presenting the options to the patient. Um, so I really do urge all of our colleagues and classmates to take a deep dive into what palliative care is and make sure that they're really involved in training themselves and arming themselves with the information that they need. Because like Dr. Jose Pereira said, no matter where you end up, no matter what specialty you end up pursuing, there is a place for palliative care in that specialty. Such an important message. And I liked his discussion on talking about some of the differences and what exactly is um, a discussion about goals of care and advanced care planning. What did you think about that, Grinder? Yeah, advanced care planning versus goals of care was a really interesting point in their conversation for sure. I'm going to guess really just to summarize some takeaways. Uh, goals of care are more of an acute thing, something that changes from day to day. For example, if, you know, unfortunately, if I were to get into a car accident or something like that, if I was still able to kind of make my own decisions, I could really voice my goals of care at that time, taking into consideration all the context of that exact moment. But unfortunately, not all of us have the luxury to be able to speak for ourselves and have our decisions be heard by our medical teams. So it is really important to also have some advanced care planning. Uh, and what that entitles is sitting down with some of your loved ones, whether that be a partner or your family, or maybe even some friends, and really discussing what you value in broad terms. What sort of life do you want to live? What quality of life uh, do you hold to be important to yourself and how you would like to shape your treatment if something unfortunate did happen to you? Because like Dr. Pereira said, about 10% of us will unfortunately be lost in a kind of sudden and maybe horrific way. And so being prepared for those tough conversations can really put your loved ones in a place where they know what you value and they can act on your behalf with confidence and know that they're making the decision that's best for you really inspiring and empowering to hear the importance of humanity when it comes to these topics in medicine. And I think especially the discussion around goals of care, advanced care planning has really been highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. I know there was a lot of discussion about the possibility of limited resources and the importance to talk with your loved ones about advanced care planning and goals of care should they become ill. And I think that's been good that there's awareness raised but also kind of in your interview, you highlighted that this might present itself as a false dichotomy, as a distinction between 
receiving a ventilator and surviving or dying if you're in palliative care, which is not true. And it's a false dichotomy. Absolutely. And just another note on the pandemic, I think it's really opened up some conversations relating to death in our media, but also just in our everyday life with our loved ones. And it's a conversation that we may have shied away from in the past, um, but really confronting it head on because it is so pushed to the front of our psyche every single day has been both a blessing and a curse, I would say. Just to highlight some resources in case you're wondering how you can conduct a conversation like that with your loved ones and discuss these ideas that we've been talking about on the podcast, we'd love to point out that there's some amazing resources available at pallium.ca. And we'll go ahead and link all these resources below in the episode description as well, just so they're available for you. We'll also be sharing them on social media. But at pallium.ca have some amazing resources. The Speak Up Canada campaign also has some great resources on how, where, and when you should be having these conversations with your loved ones. And in our role as medical students, it's also important to equip ourselves with all the information we need to be able to deliver palliative care to our patients. So we'd love to highlight as well that there's a series of modules that are ranging from 15 to 30 minutes that highlight some of these core concepts in palliative care. So you can go ahead and equip yourself with that information. And you can also reach out to the Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine here at McMaster if you are a McMaster student and go ahead and look for opportunities to get involved. Because as Dr. Pereira said, they're always looking for new learners to come in and join them. So if this is something that sparks some interest for you, we really do encourage you to go ahead and and contact Dr. Pereira through the Department of Family Medicine website. And with that being said, a big shout out to the other members of our team who worked on this episode. To Lucy for directing the episode and hosting, Priscilla as a research director and editor, Grinder for episode writing and hosting, and Isabella for her excellent music. And with that being said, this has been the ID Podcast. You can expect some more stories about medicine and the people behind them in our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to interact with us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the ID Podcast. If you have any more ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Message us or tweet us. Thank you so much. Have a great day.